Good morning, Forest View. It's nice to be here again. You're not used to having me uh, here two weeks out of three, but, but here I am. Thank you for the opportunity. It's been said that Jesus' final words to the disciples in Acts chapter 1-8 put in motion Acts 8-1. In Acts 1 and 8, Jesus sends the disciples to, to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In Acts 8, 1, because of the martyrdom of Stephen and the eventual scattering of the disciples, the word goes out to, Samar to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The blood of the martyrs and the blood of Stephen in particular became the seed of the church. And so this brings us to our text to, to today. The martyrdom of Stephen is recorded in Acts chapter 8. And by chapter 11, we read that because of the scattering of the disciples, the gospel spread to Antioch, a city that was to become a, a critical city in terms of the eventual spread of the gospel. So we're going to read uh, from Acts chapter 11, uh, starting in verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also the Greeks, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord, with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. As the text says, the scattered believers arrived in Antioch, a city 300 miles north of Jerusalem in what is today now modern-day Turkey. It was known to be the third largest city in the ancient world and had a large Jewish population. However, what we see happening uh, that we just read is a contrast. In verse 19, some of those scattered disciples who were spreading the word of the gospel were preaching only to the Jews. While others, it says in verse 19, men from Cyrene and Cyprus came preaching only to the Greeks or to the non-Jews, the Gentiles. As a result, whether the preaching was to the Jews or to the Greeks, a large number of people, people both Jewish and non-Jewish, turned to Jesus. Enough, in fact, that the word got back to Jerusalem. Hearing about what's going on, the apostles feel the need to learn more. So they send a man named Barnabas to investigate. Now we're going to see for many reasons that Barnabas was a good choice for the apostles to send to Antioch to discover what's going on. But as you read through the book of Acts at this point, Barnabas isn't necessarily the obvious choice. From the martyrdom of Stephen to the point that we are reading in, in uh, Acts chapter 11, we read largely about uh, Philip and Peter. Philip, um, who one of the disciples who were scattered, goes to Samaria and he's preaching to the Samaritans, the people who are despised by the Jews because of their mixed race and because of their uh, synchronistic practices of blending Jewish religion with pagan beliefs. 
And then we see that Philip is completely comfortable, not only with the Samaritans, but he's comfortable running alongside the carriage and even climbing inside the carriage of an Ethiopian man, the Ethiopian eunuch, and then getting out of the carriage and baptizing him. Philip, it seems, if you needed someone to go to Antioch, where there are both Jews and Greeks, someone who's willing to travel, Philip, it seems, would have been a good choice. But they didn't choose Philip. They chose Barnabas. They could have also looked at Peter. Peter, now Peter had sort of his Gentile phobia, but we read through chapters 8 to 11 that he's overcoming this. We read, in fact, about the wonderful story of him going to Cornelius, the Greek man who, uh, through miraculous circumstances, Peter is led to his house and Peter is preaching and teaching in the house of a Greek. This is uncharted territory for Peter, but Peter's developing some comfort around this. And we actually learn uh, that Peter, although Peter wasn't the one called to Antioch, we actually learn later on that Peter did end up in Antioch, but he wasn't the first choice. Instead, when it comes to choosing someone to travel to Antioch, the apostles chose Barnabas. So the question is why? Well, it seems to be a matter of both competence and character. At this point in the story, here's what we know about Barnabas. In regard to competence in Acts 4, we read that Barnabas was a Levite from Cyprus. And so if some of these people who went to Antioch to preach were from Cyprus, Barnabas would have completely been comfortable with them. He would have known their language. He might have even known them. He would have been culturally competent in working alongside these other disciples. However, as much as we know about Barnabas' cultural competence, at this point, I would say that we know much more about his character. We've spoken in previous weeks about how the early church held their possessions in common with one another, even selling possessions in order to, uh, to share with one another. And Barnabas is the one who is named, who sold a piece of property and, gener- piece of property and generously gave the proceeds to the apostles for distribution. Barnabas was wealthy and Barnabas was generous. In chapter nine, we read that Barnabas was also a respected figure who was generous with his reputation. In chapter nine, we read that the apostle Paul, three years after his Damascus road experience, lands for the first time in Jerusalem, the first time after his, his, um, after his conversion. And the disciples are understandably afraid. They know about this guy. They haven't seen him yet. They may have heard the stories, but they're unsure. So the disciples are afraid. But Barnabas is the one who comes alongside Paul and introduces him to the apostles. He vouches for the apostle Paul. He tells them about the Damascus Road experience, about Paul's conversion. He tells them about Paul's preaching at that time to the Jews. Paul, or sorry, Barnabas vouches and puts his reputation on the line for the sake of the Apostle Paul. We also know that Barnabas' name means something. Most likely you know him as the son of encouragement, but it's certain that he was more than just someone who was on the sidelines cheering for the other disciples, cheering people on. The meaning of Barnabas' name suggests that he was gifted in prophecy, in teaching, and preaching. Gifts, we, as we learn, Barnabas was generous with time after time. And we see this generosity specifically in chapter 11, verse 23. 
It says that when Barnabas arrived to Antioch and saw evidence of God's grace, he was overjoyed and encouraged everyone to remain fully committed to the Lord. Then reading further on through to verse 25, we discover that Barnabas went to Tarsus in search of Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So here Barnabas is not just generous with his gifts, but he's generous with his time. You can imagine what it would have taken for Barnabas to go and find Saul or Paul. To travel uh, from, from, uh, from Antioch up to Tarsus was about 160 kilometers one way. So it would have taken him some time. He's traveling by foot, or maybe he had to cross the Mediterranean Sea. Whatever it was, it would have taken him some time. And so he gets there, and then he needs to find the Apostle Paul, and then he needs to convince the Apostle Paul to come with him, and then he needs to return with Paul back to Antioch. So this was a serious effort on Barnabas's part. He is generous with his time. And then we read, again, just to confirm that point in verse 26, that they were there for a whole year, Barnabas and Paul together, meeting with the church and teaching large numbers of people. So let's review this together. Over the course of these few chapters, we learn that Barnabas is generous with his wealth. He's the one named who gave freely of his property, who sold his property. I mean, Ananias and Sapphira, Sapphira's were named as well, but they were pretenders. Barnabas was legit. He's generous with his reputation, vouching for the Apostle Paul. He's generous with his gifts of teaching and encouraging, using them for the sake of the church. And he's generous with his time, staying for a full year in Antioch to build up and disciple this new church. But of all these things we know about Barnabas, Perhaps the description I appreciate most is found in verse 24. Luke says that Barnabas did what he did because he was a good man. He was a good man. When we say this about someone, he was a good man, she was a good woman, we are paying them what we feel is like the highest of compliments. We sometimes describe one another this way, but often it's a summary description we use when we're speaking about someone who's recently passed away as a way of capturing their integrity, their compassion, their commitment to family, and their love for Jesus. And when we say that someone was a good man or a good woman, we are speaking about their character. Your father was a good man. Your mother was a good woman. And so here is the answer to the question. Why did the apostles send Barnabas to Antioch? It's because he was a good man. And as a good man, he was emulating Jesus himself. Luke describes Barnabas as good. And just one chapter earlier, he quotes, he quotes Peter. In Peter's, uh, when Peter is speaking to the household of Cornelius, he describes Jesus like this. Peter says, you know about Jesus of Nazareth, whom God anointed with the Holy Spirit and endowed with power. Jesus traveled around doing good and healing everyone oppressed by the devil because God was with him. If Jesus is good, or more specifically, if he is traveling around doing good, as Peter says, then the notion of being good is something that is active. It's something that we can build and nurture. In fact, we discover that though Barnabas was a good man, he wasn't perfect. <laughs> and that's actually good news for us, isn't it? He wasn't perfect. 
he had, like us, to build and nurture these things in himself. We learn in Paul's letter to the Galatians, and, and this letter to the, to, the, to, the, to the church in Galatia. Galatia was in the area of Turkey. So we, what we learn in this letter is of the situation where Barnabas became susceptible to peer pressure. Peter, as I mentioned earlier, eventually arrived in Antioch. And while Peter was there in Antioch, he was sitting down and he was dining with the Gentile believers. He was sharing food with them, sitting at the table with them until until a group of conservative Jews arrive and Peter, not wanting to be seen mingling with the Gentiles, pulls away and he stops eating with the Gentiles. And Paul tells us in his letter that Barnabas did the same thing. He was influenced by Peter. He was influenced by the peer pressure. Barnabas decided that his reputation was greater than the needs of the Gentile believers to feel included by the Jewish believers. Barnabas put his own needs ahead of the needs of the others. And the church in our time doesn't need perfect people, thankfully, but it needs good people. And Barnabas was still a good man despite his imperfections. The church needs people of integrity like Barnabas, willing to own up to their mistakes and their hypocrisy. The church in recent decades, by its own doing, has suffered as its leaders have failed morally, as abuses have occurred, and church cultures have admitted this, have allowed this to happen, or permitted this to happen. And when a church culture is toxic, everyone has the potential to get dragged down. This was why, I mean, Paul understood this. This was why Paul had to stand up and oppose Peter in front of everyone because he knew that if Peter was acting this way, other people were going to act this way. Barnabas himself got dragged into it. Paul wasn't going to allow this toxic environment, uh, this, this toxic action to take place. He wasn't going to allow it to, to permeate the culture of this church that was being built up. So in saying that the church needs good people, we might actually be saying that the church needs righteous people. Now, righteousness, that's, that's a good Bible word, isn't it? And when I speak about righteousness, it's often a word that we, we kind of think, what do we really mean by that? I want to offer this simple definition. We are righteous when we are living in right relationship with others and we see the image of God in others. We are righteous when we are living in right relationship with others, treating others as image bearers of God. One spot in the Bible where we find the word righteousness used is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, verse 20, Jesus warns his listeners, his assembled crowd, that unless their righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, and good luck with that, because the Pharisees got this nailed. They understand righteousness better than anyone. The thought of their right, of the listener's righteousness exceeding that of the Pharisees was far-fetched. It was unbelievable. Like, that was not going to happen. Jesus says, unless it does, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And it's like telling us, it's like if Jesus was here now telling us, unless we are greater than Mother Teresa... Well, what are our chances? What are our chances? 
So Jesus says this, and then he does something shocking. He reconstructs what righteousness looks like by providing six antithetical statements. If you've read the Sermon on the Mount, you'll be familiar with these. Uh, Jesus says, you have heard it said, dot, dot, dot. But I say, dot, dot, dot. In each of these six antithetical statements, we're not going to read them all. Uh, you can find them in, in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus follows this pattern. Jesus quotes from Scripture. Jesus opposes how that Scripture has been interpreted. Jesus probes behind the Scripture to get at the mind of God. And Jesus then reveals the intent of the Scripture and how his followers are to live. So like I said, for time's sake, we certainly can't look at all of these antithetical statements. But the final of the six is worth spending a bit of time on. The final of these six statements is about love, and it's an essential feature of the ethic of Jesus. The passage is Matthew 5, 43 to 48, and in it, Jesus cites an Old Testament teaching and then adds this implied statement to it. Uh, and this implied statement, though not directly from Scripture, it's not a direct quotation, could have been lifted from the imprecatory Psalms. The two statements are, love your neighbor, directly from the Torah, and hate your enemy. So Jesus says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Hate your enemy, not a direct command from Scripture, but something that kind of became embedded, became a kind of an understanding, likely taken from a reading of the Psalms, as the Psalms allow the writer to express their own emotions towards their enemies. So Jesus says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And the antithesis to this that he offers is, but I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So to be good people, to be righteous people, Jesus is teaching that we extend love not only to our family, to our closest friends, to those who are like us, but we extend love to those who are not like us, to those who oppose us. In the context that Jesus was teaching, the enemy was easy to identify. So if you're imagining, you're, you're among the listeners and you're hearing Jesus talking about loving your enemies. Well, to them, as an occupied people, the enemy was the Roman occupiers or it was those who were in cahoots with the occupiers, a tax collector, for example. Or for people concerned about their purity, the enemy is the sinner or any Gentile whose practices might be offensive to them or who might make them unclean. So when Jesus is teaching his Jewish disciples to love your enemies, this is who he's talking about. And for his followers, this would have been awfully confusing because they were expecting that Jesus was going to overthrow the Roman occupiers. And now Jesus is telling them to love them. This is your enemy. Love your enemy, Jesus is saying. So let's just review some ground that we've covered. Luke tells us that Barnabas was a good man. Barnabas was a good man. And for us to be good men and good women means being righteous. Or put more simply, to be good men and women, we are people who are living in right relationship with others and seeing the image of God in others, including our enemies. Including our enemies. 
Now, if Jesus' listeners were easily able to identify who their enemies were, how about us? Who are our enemies? Is it easy for us to identify our enemies? Or are we all good? Are we okay? No, we don't have any enemies. Or perhaps we don't even want to admit that we have enemies. We don't even want to admit that we have enemies because we feel shame about those who we perceive or experience to be our enemies. So if we have trouble answering this question, who are our enemies? Who is your enemy? Who is my enemy? If we have trouble answering this question, the first thing that we need to do, that you need to do, that I need to do, is spend some time in self-reflection, inviting the Holy Spirit to come in and explore those inner recesses of our heart and show us and reveal these things to us. Who are these people that we hold enmity towards? Who are these people that we hold bitterness towards? Who are these people that we are resentful towards? Bring them to the surface. Bring them to our mind and to our attention. If we want to follow Jesus' way of loving our enemies, we need the Holy Spirit to show us who are these people that are our enemies? Who are we treating as our enemies? Who are our perceived enemies? In some cases, it may be obvious, but in other cases, it may be hidden below the surface, and we need the Spirit to reveal this to us. Who do you fear? Who do you feel threatened by? Who makes you feel so uncomfortable that you don't want to be with them or around them? Perhaps, as I said, your enemy is a perceived enemy. Perhaps it's the immigrant who you fear will take your job or threaten the jobs of your children. Perhaps your enemy is the outspoken gay rights advocate who you feel is a threat to your values. The Burlington Post had on their cover story this week the story of the Catholic school board making their decision that they weren't going to raise the rainbow flag and if you read that, perhaps you were thinking, well, good for the Catholic school board for standing up for their values. But perhaps also as you read that story and looked at that image, you saw the person on the cover, the advocate, who was advocating for the flag. And perhaps when you saw that person, you thought, this person is my enemy. This person is contravening my values. Just perhaps, perhaps. This is the things, these are the sort of things we need the Holy Spirit to bring to our attention are these sort of things and these attitudes and beliefs simmering below the surface and we need the Holy Spirit to bring them to our attention? Is there resentment and bitterness towards these people who are perceived to be our enemies? Or perhaps your enemy is the neighbor or co-worker who has spoken badly about you or who's made false accusations against you. Or perhaps your enemy is the person who's closest to you. It's the person that you love. Perhaps your enemy is your adult child who you love, but you don't like at this time. Or perhaps it's your aging parent who's placing demands on you that you can't bear. You love these people. You love them, but you don't always like them. Perhaps these are your enemies. If the first thing we need to do is ask the Holy Spirit to reveal these things to us, the second thing we need to do 
is to pray for this person or for this group of people. When Jesus says to pray for those who persecute you, he's not just offering a formula to get over the hump of bad feelings. He's instructing us towards concrete behavior that is focused on peace and reconciliation and the building of God's kingdom. When we are praying for our enemies, you might wonder, well, what do I actually pray? How do I actually pray for my enemy? Well, let me suggest that your prayer be that they might come to see themselves as people loved by God and made in the image of God. That could be your prayer. But it may also be that you need to pray the same way for yourself so that you can see them in that light as well. We can pray that our enemies' eyes be open to God's reality for them, and we might also need to pray just as hard for ourselves to see themselves in that way, in the reality through which God sees them. And finally, beyond praying for our enemies, we need to move in proximity towards our enemies. As Paul says in Romans, while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. Christ moved towards us. God entered and enters into relationship with us. God moves in proximity towards us. And if this is true, we need to move into proximity, in proximity towards our neighbors. And we do this not to just make this person like us. It's not a strategy to get them to like us. And we don't do it for our own self-protection. We do this to give them and ourselves a glimpse of the kingdom to demonstrate reconciliation. But practically, how do we do this? How do we move towards someone in proximity when we are living in the time of COVID and we are apart from each other? Well, let me suggest that we begin by looking for the good in them. We begin by looking for the good in them. We take time to talk to them and listen to them. We learn about their experiences and their motivations. And as we do these things, we develop empathy. And as we develop empathy, we are drawn towards the other. We are drawn into their life and into their circumstances. And we develop greater understanding and appreciation. This is what empathy does. It draws us together. When Jesus calls us to love our enemies, he sets the bar high. I mean, we thought initially he set the bar high saying, you know, your righteousness needs to, ex to, to exceed that of the Pharisees. Now he set them the bar even higher. So high, in fact, that he knows we can't clear it on our own. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. And so just as Barnabas was a good man, he was a good man, Luke says, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And so we look to the Holy Spirit as our source of insight, show us our enemies, but we also look to the source of the Holy, we also look to the Holy Spirit as our source of strength, as our source of help. Barnabas had enemies. He would have taken his cue. I mean, church tradition says that Barnabas, like Stephen, was a martyr, like Peter was a martyr. Uh, Barnabas, but we, I mean, we don't have any record of how Barnabas how, how his life ended, but it's reasonable to think that he would have taken his cue from Stephen, who forgave his persecutors, his final breath, his final words were words of forgiveness. Stephen, of course, took his cue from Jesus, 
who some of his final words were words of forgiveness to his persecutors. This is loving your enemies. So what now is our question? The sermon series, what now is the question? As people of the, as people of the resurrection, how did the disciples live? How do we live? How are we generous? How are we like the early church, extending love and extending love even to our enemies? Thank you. Amen.